Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford Bloor from Tifo Football, and making his debut, Art de Roche from Football.London. So, the longest season is finally over. Well, not quite. The FA Cup final is on Saturday, and, pandemic permitting, European competition will resume on August the 7th. Manchester United have the Europa League to aim for. They finished third in the Premier League, but finished closer in terms of points to relegated Bournemouth than champions Liverpool. Now, said with the greatest respect to their current form, they're still miles off, aren't they? Yeah, Mike, still big holes in that team. I mean, I was alarmed by just how inferior they were against Leicester. They got the result and they got over the line. They got third place, but there were, there were some worrying signs. I think particularly in deep midfield, there's a porousness about Man United without the ball, which is really quite alarming. And I think going forward, I think before they do anything else this summer, I know they have designs on Jaden Sancho and who wouldn't, great player, but they've, they've got to fix that Matic position. The future of the midfield is very much Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba. So what has to happen next is there has to be the right balance and the third person in that midfield is going to be, going to be essential. You're going to have to have someone that both protects the defence and also has the ability, the technical ability, to work the ball up the pitch. I mean, just for the sake of a comparison, we've heard the stories about Liverpool having an interest in Thiago Alcantara from Bayern Munich. There is an absolute chasm between him and Nemanja Matic. And that's kind of, that's really what, what Manchester United have to be aiming at. Have to reduce these little gaps between them and Manchester City, between them and Liverpool. And I think it starts in, in, in the central midfield. Well, when he came in, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said that he wanted nine players. Oh, do you think you'll get the other five? And I thought I was really struck by something that he said, where he said his players need bigger games against better players. So where do you think they are in their development cycle? Well, in terms of the five players, I think it's going to be a really tough ask to get five proper first-team quality players this summer, especially when you consider that's going to need a significant turnaround in terms of players going out to bring players in. I do feel in terms of the development of his squad, he'd be really happy with the attacking side of his uh, squad. So you look at the way Anthony Martial has played during post-lockdown football and Mason Greenwood as well. 
Then you've got Marcus Rashford and the midfield of Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba. What is going to worry him is that defence and the deeper parts of midfield, getting that to work a bit more fluently. I feel that with Champions League, he's going to be really encouraged with the fact that his players are finally going to be able to actually make a step up in the terms of in the teams they face. When with the Europa League, which you mentioned earlier, I think I don't feel he'll be too intent on winning that now, now that the Champions League football is confirmed for next season. But I do think that he will be looking to improve the players he already has there rather than looking to splurge out on five key signings this summer. Mm. I suppose one thing that, you know, it's been a, a season of first and very strange first in many ways. You know, there's no turnaround time at best. And United with the Europa League, Seb, you know, that, that's still in abeyance. They don't really know when they're going to be in that. They could be in that for another three or four weeks. So it's very difficult to plan logically for next season, isn't it? Yeah, you know what's interesting as well, Mike, is that this will provide an examination of things that traditionally United haven't done well. So we know they have the resources and the appeal to attract a certain type of player. Do they have the internal structure to do it? And because of the uh, the idiosyncrasies of August and having to play Europa League during what is supposed to be the off-season whilst preparing for a, a Premier League restart in the second week of September, it's almost like you need an independent department to work parallel to everything that's happening. I was very interested last week to read the actually what proved to be a, a sort of a raft of contradictions about how Ed Woodward thinks about the director of football. On the one hand, I heard that he was uh, extremely happy with everything that's been going on and very pleased with the transfer activity, but also absolutely now intent to appoint a director of football some, you know, two and a half years later. I feel like maybe that's been fed into the media by a, a former colleague of ours, perhaps. <laughs> but it's it's strange because it's it's... It's almost as if Man United still don't get this. You cannot, the, the, your director of football is not your, your cherry on top of the cake. He is the person that dictates the strategy and the tone of what you do without sort of the, dictates the tone of your, of your technical department. So we'll see. I, I think the kind of, the challenges that are, that are coming are suited to those clubs that understand what needs to happen away from the pitch. And I'm still yet to be convinced that Man United are among those. So we, you know, Arts mentioned the, 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 the issues in that side. I think they are apparent. I think they need addressing irrespective of what happens in the Europa League. So we'll see if they can get it done. But it, it's interesting. And I, you know, the first question you asked, Mike, was about the difference between Manchester United and the clubs that finished above them. And I think what it comes down to is this, is this, if you look at the way that Liverpool operate, if you look at the sort of the cohesion and the identity of their technical and recruiting departments, that's something that doesn't exist at Old Trafford. So that's that's what needs to be addressed. And and I think probably August will show that. Mm, yeah, I suppose within you know, football, football, there's always, you know, it, it, there is a sort of game of five-dimensional chess going on because especially in recruitment, people are, they, they basically go to the what-if scenario, don't they? Well, if we if we qualify for the Champions League or, you know, if, if we get relegated or whatever it is, they'll have different, recruitment lists for that I think I just want to talk about one thing uh, and that's the essence of leadership you know I take everything that uh, Seb talked about the, you know, the the support staff but on the pitch one thing that you look at Liverpool there are leaders around the team Harry Maguire he's come in become the first Man United player not to miss a minute since Gary Pallister 25 years ago 
What's your view of the way that he settled in and how key is he going forward, not just as a centre-half, but as a leader? For me, I don't think it's been an easy first season for him at Manchester United. Obviously, he has had his moments where he's on the ball too long. He doesn't make decisions quickly enough. And I think that's something that's really kind of hurt his reputation from the player he was at Leicester City. I do feel that he is obviously a class centre-back. That Otherwise, he wouldn't have got the move to Manchester United. It is going to be those intangibles that really define how much of a leader he is, how much the players around him respect him and how he kind of drowns out the noise that that has been growing a lot since football returned in June. I do feel that he is going to need to improve anyway next season with his performances. It's just he has to kind of keep that single-mindedness that Manchester United chose him for a reason and he is going to need to show that reason on a more consistent basis, I think. Yeah, well, I suppose the essence of playing for a a huge club like Manchester United is that you're constantly under pressure, whether that's self-imposed or externally imposed. As a case in point, Seb, David De Gea, obviously Solskjaer's got a big decision to make about him. I just want to look at the, the whole principle of goalkeeping, if you like. We saw the goalkeepers' union in action before the Leicester game, where Kasper Schmeichel defended uh, De Gea, you had Kepper, who was very publicly snubbed by Frank Lampard yesterday. There's been another raft of debate about Jordan Pickford. What about the mentality required by that position? Do you need a special type of resilience to, to play in that role? Well, I think you must do. I think what's really interesting about goalkeeping form, Mike, is that in contrast to, to what happens to a forward who doesn't score goals or a midfielder who can't complete his passes, a goalkeeper is never just one good save away from regaining their form and their belief in themselves. And I think what you, you see is is the difficulties of trying to trying to regain an equilibrium. So for someone like, I mean, Kepa's a really good example, Jordan Pickford too, De Gea. It's almost like goalkeeping form works in, in sort of epochs. In eras and little mini 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 cycles you don't sort of you don't have a couple of games on a couple of games off you go through sort of two years of being less than you were and or two years of, of you know premium form i actually <laughs> a long time ago now i played goalkeeping i i was a goalkeeper at school i was never a particularly good player but the one thing that i really struggled with was the mental side of it i was very afraid and to the point where i when you're not playing well, it seems like you second guess everything you do. And I don't mean the kind of the reflex side of the game, but the decisions. When do you come for a cross? How good is your kicking? You know, how, how quickly are you distributing the ball once you have it? And I think maybe that's the problem is that goalkeepers don't really have the opportunity to compartmentalize their performance. They don't, you know, if you're if you're a forward that's underperforming, you can drop a little bit deeper and start laying the ball off and you can hide a little bit. Goalkeeper can't do that. And so I, I think it's as a position on the pitch, it's it's almost something that requires a couple more books to be written about it. There's an idea, Mr. Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because uh, it's it's one of the great unexplored areas of, of the game. And actually, a couple of episodes ago on this pod, we talked about the absence of goalkeeping analysis on television. I, I think this is one of the ways in which it shows, because we don't really know, do we? I mean, we all have answers for, you know, what's wrong with that fullback and, you know, why isn't that central midfielder playing particularly well? When it comes to goalkeeping, when it comes to someone like David De Gea, who, let's be fair, has set standards which have been stratospheric over the course of his career in England. And now he is 
I don't want to be too harsh, but I would say that on, on a form basis, he's among the bottom five goalkeepers in the country, in the Premier League. There's no proper explanation for that, is there? It's just tenuous theory and people like me sort of, you know, speculating on what happened to, to you know, when I was 13, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So that's, it, shows the, it shows the knowledge gap, doesn't it? It's still very, very vague. Yeah, it, it is such an exposed position and it's a black and white position in many ways, isn't it? Ah, you know, you follow Arsenal closely. For a second, you're Mikel Arteta. You've got a decision to make between Emi Martinez and Bernd Leno when he eventually comes back from injury. Who's your number one? I think just based on the consistent amount of minutes he's been playing recently, it's, it's going to have to be Emi Martinez. And that's not a knock to Bernd Leno because he has been one of Arsenal's players of the season up until his injury at Brighton. It's just that Emi Martinez has taken his chance so well that you wouldn't want to mess that up in any way. Even... Yesterday against Watford, although Watford had a lot of chances, there weren't too many times where Martinez was properly forced into a save, but his concentration throughout post-lockdown football has been superb. And when he was forced to make those saves late on in the game, especially the one against Welbeck, where he did the little backheel flick, that's where he's proven himself to Mikel Arteta that he is ready to compete and possibly be Arsenal's first-choice goalkeeper when Bernd Leno comes back. But again, that's not a knock to Bernd Leno. I think he's been exceptional this season. Mm. And it's actually, you know, people almost forget that actually Martinez is late 20s, isn't he? Which is not the usual profile for someone in his position. Yeah, he's been really patient, waiting for his chance. He, his last uh, loan spell was at Reading, I believe, in a couple of seasons ago, and he even impressed when he was there. It's just he's been behind Wojcik Szczesny, behind Ospina, behind Petr Cech, and now behind Bernd Leno. He's just had to wait for his chance. Arteta's known him since he, he was a player at the club, and now he's got his chance, and he's proven why he was so high highly regarded by Arsene Wenger and Una Emery to keep him at the club and not sell him on. Just keep giving him little bits of loan experiences at Reading and other clubs to kind of keep his confidence for when he does finally get that chance. Mm. As I said, Seb, you know, it is a black and white selection decision with goalkeepers. There's no way back for Kepa, I'm assuming, at Chelsea now. Does qualification for the Champions League justify Frank Lampard? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think we'd be disingenuous if we pretended that Chelsea's qualification didn't depend on the underperformance of a couple of other clubs, notably Arsenal and Spurs, and also Leicester, let's be fair. I mean, at the beginning of the season, we wouldn't have said that, but where they were at the turn of the year, that's some underperformance. But I think it gives Lampard a mandate. I think with issues like Kepa, it gives him the authority and the gravitas to actually dictate what he needs and what he wants. And also, with the Kepa example... The big problem for Chelsea is going to be finding a place to put him. It's all very well saying that you don't want your £70 million goalkeeper, but you've got to find him a new home. And his stock has diminished so significantly that it's going to be very difficult even to to, to sell him at a you know a, a healthy loss. But Lampard, Lampard now has the, the mandate to say, well, this is a problem I inherited, and this is what I need to go forward. He's delivered Champions League football, and he delivered it at a very important point. I mean, had they not qualified for the Champions League, it becomes very difficult to then to continue the spending because Chelsea have done all of their attacking recruitment already. 
But I mean, anyone who's watched them would would appreciate that they're probably a centre half and a couple of fullbacks away from being truly competitive. Lampard now has the new revenue streams coming in, but also the authority to say to someone like Marina Granovskaya, "This is what I require." You know, I'm I'm not interested necessarily in the panic that went on because that's what the decision to sign Kepper in the first place was. It was a reaction reactionary decision. It was an overspend and it was a panic. You now have to build a team around what he wants and. That's a position he wasn't in a year ago, not just because of the transfer ban, but but also because of where he was coming coming from. He was he was a Derby County manager who was shown significant naiveties in his first season. He was someone that was getting the job because of his playing career. There's no bones about that. It's obviously true. But now there's something tangible. He now has a bargaining chip in this game. And that's very important. And yeah, goalkeeper is the starting point because Kepa's decline, it's... I, I, I don't even, it, it, I, I can't remember a goalkeeper who has made less use of his body. Do you remember what we used to say about Peter Schmeichel? About, you know, mm. he was only, I think he was only about six foot three, but he seemed massive. He was like a, he was like a character from the Iliad. Kepa's the reverse of that. I mean, he's not, I mean, he's, uh, I think he's a, a couple of centimeters shorter than Peter Schmeichel, but he still seems like a little boy in a way, especially when he's under a high ball. It's extraordinary. And, and that's, that's one quality that you cannot, that's one deficiency you cannot get away with in the Premier League. It's a physical league. It's a physical six-yard box. He's just not the right goalkeeper for this task. So it's um, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's a funny old saga that one. Mm. We're almost in an era of of, of almost club legends re-emerging as leaders. You know, we've got Solskjaer, Lampard. Again, to your experience with Arsenal, Art, give me your impression of how Mikel Arteta has developed in his time as manager, but also the feeling towards him, either within the club or without, through the supporter base? Yeah. First of all, I say he's obviously not in the club legend status that Lampard and Solskjaer were when they took the jobs, but there has been a real kind of taken to him from everyone at Arsenal, really, from the fans to the people inside the club. He's made real progress, and that was clear from the moment he walked in the door, really. His vision was clear, much clearer than what Unai Emery's was when he came to the club. And I think the way that Mikel Arteta has gone about seeing through his vision has given Arsenal a real cause for enthusiasm, really, because when you look at the team he took over, they were it was just so confused. Unai Emery would switch systems and personnel almost every game. He couldn't you couldn't predict what was going to happen on the pitch. But when he came in, he just kind of kept it to the basics and brought in a few fundamental ideas that the team have stuck by that have really been what has seen them progress, even though they did finish eighth and that wouldn't be what anyone at Arsenal, including Arteta, would want. There have been significant improvements in the way that Arsenal both attack with the ball and defend without it. I think there's a lot more organisation in the way they play. That is what will give him encouragement ahead of next season. And I think what is also a point that doesn't maybe get brought up enough with Arteta is the bravery he really showed to take the job when he did. He himself has mentioned that he could have waited till the summer. Of course, no one could foresee what happened with the whole pandemic, but he's stressed how much he didn't want to waste the rest of the 2019-20 season, how much he wanted to use it to build for the future of the club. And I think 
that's something that everyone's picked up on uh, from the players, fans to staff inside the club. Mm, yeah, Arteta, as, as we know, had a you know, terrific apprenticeship as a coach under Pep Guardiola. Seb, I wonder whether Guardiola's trademark intensity could prove counterproductive. Now, by that I mean he's immediately thrown his squad into a two-week, which, which, what is essentially a two-week training camp before the Champions League return against Real Madrid. Is that overkill? I mean, it might be, Mike. I mean, I'm not sure I'd want to spend two weeks solidly with Pep Guardiola. I mean, it makes me think of kind of team building exercises and uh, little sessions where everyone leaves their phone outside and, and talks about their feelings and, you know, creates little thought matrices on a, on a whiteboard. I think he's in a bit of a difficult spot, though, Mike, because the oddity of the schedule means, well, what, what else is he supposed to do? If Manchester City were to to get rolled over by Real Madrid in the second leg of that tie and they'd sort of taken a, a visibly laissez-faire attitude towards it. He's going to be harshly criticised for that. So I think it's kind of, I don't envy the players. No, good luck to them. But uh, <laughs> I think it's necessary. I mean, um, what else are they supposed to do? I mean, it's it's kind of, it's this one-off situation with how European football is going to work. And it's, it's going to be difficult for everyone to cope with. So I suppose locking the doors and uh, keeping the players away and, and sort of building this mini training camp is really the only option. Yeah, you know, as I said, they, they did end the season really well. They scored 102 goals in 38 games, which is the most in the top five leagues across Europe. That, of course, only tells half the story because we've talked ad nauseum about the defensive problems. Oh, I'd just like you to concentrate on two players, if I may, who have had brilliant seasons. Kevin De Bruyne got his 20 assists and Raheem Sterling got his 30 goals. They are the two pillars of that team, aren't they? Yeah, I think... For me, what I really took from Kevin De Bruyne when I saw him play live was he's kind of just like an action man, really. He does everything. People kind of look at his goals and his assists as just everything that he does. But when you actually see him in the flesh, you see how robust he is, how he's literally the driving force of uh, Manchester City going forward, but also the fact that he is tracking back to defend when, whenever possible. And that coming from a 29-year-old as well is something I don't think many people see when they do see his highlight reel, for instance. They're going to see his goal against Norwich where that was just craziness, really. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but they're not going to see him tracking back 50 yards back up the pitch to close off spaces, which is a really integral part of Pep Guardiola's kind of philosophy in football that his players have to put in the hard yards to get in the team. And I think that's a part of his game that people really don't appreciate enough. I do feel, of course, his goals and assists are going to be the things that people are attracted by when he does finally move on. But for the here and now, it's those little things in his game that make him such a big part of what Manchester City is doing. As for Raheem Sterling, I think the most impressive thing is just the consistency He's been able to keep up. I think it was the 2017-18 season where he really stepped up. And then just being able to stay at that level for such a consistent amount of time is what's been really impressive to a point where him reaching that goal tally is almost considered a norm now, which at I think he's 24, 25 years old. That is a great achievement for him. 
Well, Jamie Vardy, of course, won the Golden Boot at the age of 33, so I should think we must pay tribute to him. But what about Leicester in general, Seb? They've got to settle for the Europa League. I suppose it's a one-word question. Why? Fragility, Mike, I think. It's fair to point out that Leicester were without both of their fullbacks and also James Madison for a significant proportion of the restart. But I think one of the themes of their season has been this this vulnerability. At first, that manifested in a, in a failure to perform against the biggest sides in the division, almost like a, a stage fright. I think if you look back at their sort of their um, their marquee games, you see that in each of them just about. But I wonder whether the the mental dynamics of this side are quite right, meaning they they have this wonderful clutch of, of young players. I think over the summer or over the off season, however we're referring to to August in this very strange situation. I think one of the things that Brendan needs to do is is to look at how he pairs off that sort of developing talent with a little bit more experience, a little bit more sort of, you know, a few more grizzled players, a kind of whatever today's version of Esteban Cambiasso is. Because the hallmark of their of their season has been it hasn't just been one or two players who've been off. It's been a team failure, you know, and there have been mental mistakes all the way through. Obviously, unfortunately, you know, Hamza Chowdhury coughed up a mistake yesterday resulting in anti-martial going through on goal. And that's not to single him out because that's just been a, a feature of, of, of their games for, for many months now. I mean, whether you think, of, whether you look back at the sort of that, that game at Bournemouth when Suyuncu got himself sent off was a ridiculous passage of play. Things like that. That's what needs to be cured, I think. Mm. Lest we forget, Spurs did finish sixth. Oh, I'm going to give you a free go here, tribally across North London. Are Spurs as good as... Jose Mourinho says, or are they as mediocre as they occasionally look? For me, I'd swing towards the more mediocre side just because the way Jose Mourinho sets up his sides, especially since he's returned to the Premier League, is very much around getting the result. We need to get the result, so this is how we're going to play. It's not very much an approach that is long-term. It's more of a short-term kind of fix which he goes for. And I don't think that's something that Spurs had when they were under Mauricio Pochettino, for example, even though that went a bit sour towards the end. The focus was always, okay, how are Tottenham going to elevate themselves in the next few years to get closer to the bridging that gap between themselves and what was the top four and then themselves and what was the top two, really. But of course they couldn't do that. But the approach was always okay what's next rather than how can we how can we just survive and I think that's something that really needs to be addressed by Mourinho this summer of course him changing his ways I'm not sure that's gonna happen in in a few weeks but of course he did get the result that he wanted which was getting Tottenham into the Europa League but I don't think it is as big an achievement as he was making it seem to be. Yeah. Were you, Seb, you know, metaphorically at least, in that huddle with uh, Jose and his staff jumping up and down with glee that you're in the Europa League? Well, I, I was covering the Leicester Man United game, so no. <laughs> <laughs> I I take some of Jose Mourinho's points on this. I think that um I think that all things considered, he's done a, a passing job. It's a he's a couple of strokes under par, maybe. I think the question now becomes, what can Tottenham do to take away some of the excuses about the style? I think Jose would say that, um, you know, without a proper ball winner, without some actual security at the base of his midfield, his team can't attack in the patterns that he would like them to. 
So they're restricted to kind of very negative counterattacking football, which relies on pace and you know numerical mismatches. I think that's that's objective A for Spurs. I still want to see, on the basis that this sort of this objective has been completed, and they they've kind of I, on the, on Twitter I compared Spurs' season to kind of to to Apollo thirteen. It's a successful failure, isn't it? They they got back to earth and everything. It could have been a lot worse. So now that that's happened, now that kind of the the pragmatic aspect of this project is over, now that we're through the point at which the only thing that mattered was finishing place and re-qualifying for, for Europe and collecting the revenue, now I think style becomes part of the equation. Now I think it's time to start looking at what is this side aiming towards? Not just points on the board and winning games by any means necessary, but what is its, what is its ideological future? What kind of football team are they going to be? And I think that's kind of... That's the point at which people are going to start getting behind Jose Mourinho, or, or that—that's—that's that, that's the time to have the conversation about what he's worth to Tottenham. I think, and I'm aware that I've said an awful lot of negative things about him in the past on this podcast, and you know, they're recorded for posterity. But it's okay. It's okay. It's—it's a—it's passable. But then, I don't think this is a question just about Jose Mourinho. I think this involves all kinds of themes to do with recruitment, to do with Daniel Levy to do with who it is that's making sporting decisions at Tottenham. And I think the benefit of having a season like this where, in effect, you get away with making a lot of mistakes and the rest of the league doesn't punish you, is you get the opportunity to examine your processes again and to look back and say, what could have been done better? And what was it that led us into this situation in the first place? And I think that's that's the first conversation that has to be happening at Tottenham today. Mm. Let's look at relegation art, if we could. Aston Villa survive. In many ways, I think that's probably a popular thing and it reflects the personality of their manager, Dean Smith. He's a very good man. You know, I know that I've had personal experience of that with the compassion that he showed to a friend and colleague, Martin Ling, who was having mental health issues. He visited him in the in the clinic, went to the extent of actually when he took him out for a walk, always walked on the outside of the pavement just in case any suicidal tendencies re-emerged. A very good man, spoke emotionally about his, his father, whom he lost during the pandemic, and what it meant to him. It's a great feel-good story in that sense. Is it deserved? Is that survival deserved, Art? I do think so. I feel since the restart, obviously, they had a, a bit of luck with the Varkor. Bit of luck. <laughs> <laughs> a, bit, a little bit of luck with the Varkor on the first day back. But I do feel that, especially in the last couple of weeks, they've really stepped it up, starting with that performance against Crystal Palace, where they were by far the better team on that day. Then against Arsenal, they were once again the better team. And, of course, they didn't get the win they wanted at uh, the London Stadium, but a point was enough, and that is what kept them up. I do feel that um, throughout the season, they have lacked that kind of decisiveness that is really needed to be in the Premier League and that's something that's going to be need to be addressed moving forward but then you look at who was relegated and they just didn't really deserve their places in the Premier League this season Watford throughout the season have just looked so kind of lethargic bar their performance against Liverpool which now looking back as one of the most freak results of the season. You look at Bournemouth and they've just kind of gone stale 
really, as they've gone through their Premier League kind of experience. They looked really good when they first came into the league, but now they're kind of just relying on on mistakes from other teams rather than actually putting their own stamp on the game. And I think, on the whole, Aston Villa really did deserve to stay up uh, this season. And enables Grealish to leave with a clean conscience, I suppose, Seb. Where do you think he'll end up? Uh, I think he'll end up at Manchester United. I, I want him to stay, Mike. I don't see the harm in him staying either. I, I, I sort of... That's not going to happen, though, is it? But let, let, Let's put it this way. I've had the, the pleasure of watching Jack Grealish play at Villa Park. There is something, today more so than ever before, because it's rare, there is something very special about watching a local hero in his natural environment, mm-hmm. and especially so when it's a player of Grealish's abilities, like his, his technical profile. He's... Like he's got a kind of um, you know a, a slightly anachronistic style. We accept that. But he's also gifted and expressive and uninhibited on the ball, and the crowd love him and he loves them. And I I can't get enough of that kind of thing. And also I understand all the motivation from leaving. At the same time, with Villa staying in the Premier League and whatever they do next being hypothetically built around his abilities, that is an optimal situation for a player like him. If he was to go, let's say uh, just. Uh, hypothetically, he goes to Manchester United. What does that look like? I mean, it involves a bigger contract, it involves bigger profile, but it also probably involves a slightly more tenuous role. He will play where there are holes in that side, not in a role designed for him. And that is a very significant difference. For someone like him, who has to be free in a formation, who has to feel able to express himself, who has to feel able to take risks with the ball, that's very difficult. And so, yeah, very naively, I still maintain hope that he'll he'll still be a Villa player next year because I, I I'm not ready to let go of that side of football yet, and I know I probably should have done 20 years ago, um, <laughs> but it's something that it's something that, that draws me to it. It's something it's a texture to the game that is absent in a lot of fixtures. And um, Grealish at Villa Park is like uh, you know it's like the Queen on a bike riding through Windsor. It's that kind of thing. It's like I hope he's not someone that just quickly without thought abandons his 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 childhood team and moves on at the first opportunity because there's no necessity to it now what about you know a similar sort of situation uh at Bournemouth they they did go stale you're right Eddie Howe he is associated with the club for through good and ill he I thought looked increasingly careworn as the season went on and he spoke about you know having to have a long dark night of the soul to work out what he was going to do with himself in the next few days. Where do you see his future? Would you be surprised if he left Bournemouth? No, and I think if he was to leave Bournemouth, that would be a necessary decision to take, in my opinion. I feel, yes, everyone knows how connected he is with the club, how committed he he was to the job. But when you look at it harshly, it just wasn't good enough anymore. And I think... For himself, he he's proven himself to be a good manager, a Premier League standard manager. It's just about finding where he fits again. I don't think bringing Bournemouth back up is his job. I think that's probably a job for a different manager. His job should now be to be- become a manager that can make a step up into maybe the mid-table range of the Premier League or possibly try and challenge to get into the Europa League. I don't think Bournemouth is a job that can help him kind of develop even more as a manager. Yes, he is still a young manager, but he's given 
most of his life to Bournemouth. And and I don't think that's something that he necessarily needs or Bournemouth. I think now is probably the right time for him to move on to a bigger challenge. Of course, in terms of clubs that might want to bring him in, that might be hurt by the fact that he was relegated. But I do think in his five years in the Premier League, he is he has proven that he can. He does have the ability to improve sides and make them feared in the Premier League. Yeah, I, I I wonder I wonder whether he might even end up at Crystal Palace, where you know they've had interest in him in the past. Roy Hodgson's done a fantastic job, but they did seem to run out of steam after uh, the restart. I wouldn't wish this probably on my own worst enemy at the moment, but the, you know the, the, there's a vacancy at Watford, isn't there? Seb, the sacking of Nigel Pearson, I thought, turned the tide emotionally. Uh, does that go down as one of the worst boardroom decisions in Premier League history? Yeah, funnily enough, it does, but also as one of the least surprising in a strange way, given what we know about Watford. I'm really sad about this, Mike, actually, because I've loved covering games at Watford. I love the people there. I love the atmosphere at the club. It's one of the very best grounds in which to watch Premier League football from the press box. Great view. I feel like maybe, um, and maybe there's sort of the um, there'll, there'll be an autopsy in time, and you know someone will actually write a proper feature on this. But it, it feels like the club outthought themselves. I've remembered, and this might embarrass you a little bit, but I, I remember reading a passage in one of your books, uh, in, in State of Play, I think, about Watford and about the way they're run. And I remember then listening to the kind of the, the the tone of that particular interview. I won't mention who it's with. People can dig into that themselves. And it suggested a complete rejection of, of sort of the orthodoxy. It's sort of that the club's approach, this kind of this very transient, short, sharp, shock culture that they'd employed was absolutely infallible. And anyone that disagreed was just wrong. Now, when, when I heard about the Nigel Pearson news, I thought of that interview that you did there. And I remember thinking, this is not quite chickens coming home to roost, but it is a, a little bit of a comeuppance. It's a bit of a, we have gone too far down this line. We believe too much in our own methodology. And as a decision, <laughs> there's no way of defending it. I don't have the vocabulary to 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 sort of to, to justify that, even if I was being, um, even if I was playing devil's advocate. It's cost this sort of back and forward, this indecision, this belief that managers are disposable and can just be thrown away at a minute's notice, cost them the Premier League status that their entire business model is now dependent upon. And unfortunately, because they've had this culture whereby players come in and they bounce out and Watford has set themselves up as a as a launching pad for the next step of a player's career, when you go down, when you're relegated, you can't count on any loyalty within your playing squad. Maybe with, with players like Troy Deeney, possibly Ben Foster, maybe... But the bulk of that, that you know, the, this, this squad are not going to be there next season. So you have to begin again. You go all the way back to, um, you know, to the first space on the board. And yeah, Watford have outthought themselves, I think. I think that's mm. the fairest way of putting it. Would you expect, Art, any of these three relegated clubs to bounce back up? Norwich might be the one I'd go for, just because in terms of uh, the points Seb brought up, the squad they've got, I think they're probably the one that's most likely to stick together. And I don't see them just binning off <laughs> uh, Daniel Farker because he got relegated. I think the way they got promoted was very much not a surprise, but it was, OK, we're in the Premier League, let's enjoy this kind of thing. They tried to keep their core values when they came to the Premier League and it just didn't work out. I think they 
are probably going to be the best served in the championship next season. When you look at Watford, of course, you've got Premier League quality players there, so they're not going to want to play championship football. When you look at Bournemouth, they've also got a good amount of Premier League quality players. You look at Callum Wilson, Josh King, David Brooks, Ramsdale possibly even could get a decent move if if he wanted to, I think. When you look at Norwich, they've also got players like that. But I think in terms of the squad itself, they're probably most likely to stick together. And that's what would give them a better chance of bouncing back. Getting towards the end of, of the show now, a couple of points just before we do finish. Transfer window is open from today. I think it's probably naive to expect a rush of deals. Liverpool look to have shown their hand. If Lovren goes to Zenit for £11 million, that's a typically good deal. Guys, just is there one transfer that you think will happen in the next month or so? Start with you, Seb. I expect Thiago to move to Liverpool. And I, I really hope it does. I think he's a lovely, lovely player to watch and uh, the kind of one, the, the kind of player that we want on our doorstep. As a more general point, I think I think what this transfer window is going to depend on is the top of the food chain. I know that's generally true in the transfer window. I think because of the financial situation, once we get a couple of deals, you know, between the top clubs. So if Manchester United complete a deal for Jaden Sancho, I think we're looking at sort of a chain reaction situation. I think you know a lot of clubs are going to keep their powder dry until they're able to, you know, shift something from their wage bill or, or move. You know, I mean, if every club can uh, sell a Dejan Lovren, a 31-year-old Dejan Lovren, by the way, for £12 million, then we're going to have quite a good window. But I, I think we're going to, it's going to be a slow starter. Mm. What are you expecting, Art? Yeah, I think it's going to be a slow start, as Seb said. I don't think teams are going to willingly just rush into things, especially seeing as... Uh, they're not going to have a lot of time to settle these players in. In terms of what deals I might expect, I think Jack Grealish will probably leave Aston Villa. I, I do feel that, yes, he was their talisman this season. He was the man that almost single-handedly lifted them from relegation. But I do feel that he is going to be looking for the next challenge, similar to the way that... Eddie Howe's time at Bournemouth is, is probably coming to the right time to move on. I do feel it is the right time for Jack Grealish to move on to a new challenge. I don't, I don't feel Manchester United is the best fit for him because, as we said earlier on, the attacking side of their game is what's developed the best. And I don't think he's the player that is... He's not the player to have as a squad option. He's he's a player to have that is a starting eleven player in your team where he would go I'm just not sure on that but I do think he will leave okay uh, well we, we come to the, the final segment our thoughts for the day as you're making your debut anything you want to get off your chest the one I'd go for is maybe Southampton possibly need a bit of credit for sticking with Ralph Hassan Hootal of course they had their problems in the midpoint in the season where a lot of people were expecting him to be sacked but they kept with him and he proved why they were so impressed with him when he first came in. And I think the job he'd done to kind of turn their season around needs a bit of credit, especially with the way Danny Ings played towards the end of the season. OK, Seb. Yeah, I just want to send my congratulations to um, Weymouth and Mark Mosley. I spent a bit of time with them this season. Wonderful club, great guys. 
they won their National League South semi-final on Saturday evening. Late goal from Yemi Ambidabi. And he's done a wonderful job. I mean, um, this is a really difficult time for non-league football. It's a difficult time for league clubs, let alone non-league clubs. And they've worked really, really hard uh, under extremely difficult circumstances. And they deserve all their success and very best of luck in the final, obviously. As we said right at the start of the show, although the season is over, it's not over, is it? The new Premier League season is scheduled to start on September the 12th. Now, the FA have agreed to scrap replays in the FA Cup to ease fixture congestion. It's meant to be for only one season, but we've seen this movie before, haven't we? The biggest clubs use their financial muscle to get what they insist they need. No one particularly cares that smaller clubs will be denied a traditional payday. If you think this rule will be rescinded after a year, give my love to the fairies at the bottom of your garden. Absolutely no chance. The elite are already insisting that they'll withdraw from the League Cup if they're not permitted to field their under-23 teams. It's the thin end of the wedge, another dilution of principle. Football's changing in front of our eyes. And that's a crying shame. Hope you agree with me, but thanks for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.